And so after last week's poems about childhood, it seems uh, sort of worthwhile and right, doesn't it, to spend an episode talking about the other side of this very strange coin and doing an episode on poems about being a parent. And I think that what we'll find, if you take any, um, any serious topic, I suppose, and try to find good poetry about it, you won't find, uh, the best of them won't be about how good this given thing is, or about how bad it is, and in terms of parenting, how wonderful and uh, life-changing, and uh, my child has taught me so many new things in the world, or the other side, this sucks, this is horrible, why did I ever do this? Uh, what you will find is just the strangeness of it, of sitting in the middle and of being fascinated and exasperated and, yes, happy and, yes, angry by turns and um, or just simply uh, exhausted or filled with life and filled with energy about this weird thing that you have found yourself doing, being uh, responsible for bringing up a human being and trying to get them uh, into the world while also uh, maintaining a sense of your own self. And how does that happen? And uh, how do you do it? And I think that the poems that I've chosen here are about that sense of being, about the whole thing being just weird and at times feeling out of control and at times feeling as if there has never been anything better that ever happened to you. Um, all of those things all at once. And I wanted to start with a poem by Sylvia Plath, who lived from 1932 until 1963. And this is her poem called Morning Song, and it says this. Love set you going like a fat gold watch. The midwife slapped your foot soles, and your bald cry took its place among the elements. Our voices echo, magnifying your arrival. New statue in a drafty museum, your nakedness shadows our safety. We stand round blankly as walls. I am no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. All night your moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. I wake to listen. A far sea moves in my ear. One cry, and I stumble from bed, cow-heavy and floral, in my Victorian nightgown. Your mouth opens clean as a cat's. The window square whitens and swallows its dull stars. And now you try your handful of notes. The clear vowels rise like balloons. And you really, you can really see it right there. Motherhood, uh, being a new mother, being a new parent, is not all uh, one thing. It is a mixture of these things. And I can't think of anybody who has expressed this better in the last uh, 40 years or so than Louise Glick, who just died recently. She lived from 1943 to 2023. 
And I've read it so many times here that I won't repeat it again in this episode, but go searching out for her poem called uh, Brown Circle. I'm going to read another poem from the same collection that that comes from, and this is called Ararat from 1990. And uh, this is a poem called Child Crying Out. And it says, You're asleep now. Your eyelids quiver. What son of mine could be expected to rest quietly, to live even one moment free of weariness? The night's cold. You've pushed the covers away. As for your thoughts, your dreams, I'll never understand the claim of a mother on a child's soul. So many times I made that mistake in love, taking some wild sounds to be the soul exposing itself. But not with you. Even when I held you constantly, you were born, you were far away. Whatever those cries meant, they came and went, whether I held you or not, whether I was there or not. The soul is silent. If it speaks at all, it speaks in dreams. That is also that sense of being a new parent of, um, you feel slightly useless and uh, bewildered. Uh, what, what can you possibly do for this thing in your life? And the other reaction to it actually comes from a different poem of Louise Glick's from a collection in 2009 called A Village Life. And I'll actually share Louise Glick reading this poem. Um, it was the, I think, the first bit of audio from her that I found after she won the Nobel Prize for Literature back in 2020. And so this was, I think, the right just about the first or maybe one of the first poems of hers that I became aware of. And it is just a great uh, illustration of what being a new parent is like. And so let's listen to that real quick. First snow. Like a child, the earth's going to sleep, or so the story goes. But I'm not tired, it says. And the mother says, you may not be tired, but I'm tired. You can see it in her face. Everyone can. So the snow has to fall. Sleep has to come. Because the mother is sick to death of her life and needs silence. And isn't that just a wonderful, brief, little... Uh, snapshot that uh, so many parents out there are probably just shaking their heads and nodding yes to. Then we come to something completely different. Uh, this is Philip Larkin, who I'm pretty sure uh, never had any children of his own. Uh, he lived from 1922 until 1985, and this is his uh, rightly famous poem called This Be the Verse. And uh, this is not the kind of poem that uh, I was exposed to in high school when I was uh, told about the virtues of rhyme, but I sort of wished that I had been exposed to this uh, fairly early. It would have been helpful. Um, and it says, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. 
They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. But of course, that does sound like the kind of poem written by someone who never had uh, children. They don't know the, uh, the other side of uh, how perfectly that is phrased. Um, because the other side, actually, one of the, the great examples of it is this little poem from Edgar Lee Masters, the American poet, who lived from 1868 until 1950. And this is from his wonderful book, uh, Spoon River Anthology, which, of course, is just uh, the conceit of it is that it is just a collection of monologues from the dead, almost their uh, epitaphs on their tombstones. And so each poem is simply the name of the deceased person. And a great deal is made uh, in talking about Spoon River Anthology, I guess especially when it was released around 1915 or so, about how scandalous a lot of the material is. It talks about uh, uh, things like abortion and small town secrets and sort of Peyton Place kind of stuff. But there's also this uh, poem that is under the heading of the woman's name Lucinda Matlock. And this is what Lucinda Matlock has to say. I went to the dances at Chandlerville and played Snap Out at Winchester. One time we changed partners driving home in the moonlight of middle June, and then I found Davis. We were married and lived together for 70 years, enjoying, working, raising the 12 children, eight of whom we lost, ere I had reached the age of 60. I spun, I wove, I kept the house, I nursed the sick, I made the garden, and for holiday rambled over the fields where sang the larks, and by Spoon River, gathering many a shell and many a flower and medicinal weed, shouting to the wooded hills, singing to the green valleys. At ninety-six I had lived enough, that is all, and passed to a sweet repose, what is this I hear of sorrow and weariness, anger, discontent, and drooping hopes? Degenerate sons and daughters, life is too strong for you. It takes life to love life. And that's sort of the... Uh, the the razor's edge that I was talking about at the beginning here. It's very hard to write uh, a happy poem about family and a happy poem about being a parent without sort of sliding into being a greeting card. But I think Ed Edgar Lee Masters was able to do it uh, in the voice of Lucinda Matlock. And I think what she says here um, isn't meant to be sarcastic. It is meant to be simplistic so we can sneer at it. I think it really is something that we can go back to and listen to again, 
or just read again um, and uh, take seriously. It isn't all just what uh, Philip Larkin's poem said, which sounds more and more to me like how stand-up comedians talk about uh, being a parent. Um, but there is also this other side to it as well that is extremely hard uh, to write good poetry about. And this next one, I believe this might be the oldest uh, poem that I'll read here today. It is from Ben Johnson, who lived from 1572 until 1637. And this is just his poem on the death of his first son. And this is what Ben Johnson has to say. He says, Farewell, thou child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, loved boy. Seven years thou wert lent to me, and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Oh, could I loose all father now, for why will man lament the state he should envy? To have so soon scaped worlds and flesh's rage, and if nor their misery, yet age, rest in soft peace, and asked, say, here doth lie, Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such, as what he loves may never like too much. And of course my favorite bit of that is, rest in soft peace, and asked, say, here doth lie, Ben Johnson, his best piece of uh, poetry, his best creation, is this child who has died at the age of seven. And the other poet, other than uh, Louise Glick, who has written so wonderfully about uh, being a parent, um, is the late Irish poet Avon Boland, who, uh, whose years were almost uh, identical with uh, Louise Glick. She lived from 1944 until 2020. And there are so many wonderful poems that she wrote about her daughters and about being a mother that it was hard to choose just one of them. But because uh, Avon Boland also wrote so well about uh, mythology, I thought that uh, including one of those here would be the best thing to do. This is a poem called uh, The Pomegranate. And of course, it takes as its theme, as its story, the uh, the story from Greek myth of Demeter and Persephone, where Persephone is the young daughter who is kidnapped and uh, taken to the underworld, and her mother, Demeter, uh, goes around the world looking for her lost daughter and, in the process, sort of forgets, or I think uh, forgets to, uh, to inaugurate spring or uh, sort of punishes the world because her daughter is missing by withholding spring. But in either case, um, this idea of uh, a mother going in search of her child and then equating it with um, with Ireland, what this would have been in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s here. Uh, Avon Boland says this. This is the poem called The Pomegranate. The only legend I have ever loved is the story of a daughter lost in hell and found and rescued there. Love and 
Blackmail are the gist of it. Ceres and Persephone the names. And the best thing about the legend is I can enter it anywhere, and have. As a child in exile in a city of fogs and strange consonants, I read it first, and at first I was an exiled child, in the crackling dusk of the underworld the stars blighted. Later I walked out in a summer twilight, searching for my daughter at bedtime. When she came running, I was ready to make any bargain to keep her. I carried her back past white beams and wasps and honey-scented budleas. But I was Ceres then, and I knew winter was in store for every leaf, on every tree, on that road, was inescapable for each one we passed, and for me. It is winter, and the stars are hidden. I climb the stairs and stand where I can see my child asleep beside her teen magazines, her can of Coke, her plate of uncut fruit. The pomegranate, how did I forget it? She could have come home and been safe and ended the story and all our heartbroken searching, but she reached out a hand and plucked a pomegranate. She put out her hand and pulled down the French sound for apple, and the noise of stone and the proof that even in the place of death, in the heart of legend, in the midst of rocks full of unshed tears, ready to be diamonds by the time the story was told, a child can be hungry. I could warn her. There is still a chance. The rain is cold. The road is flint-colored. The suburb has cars and cable television. The veiled stars are above ground. It is another world, but what else can a mother give her daughter but such beautiful rifts in time? If I defer the grief, I will diminish the gift. The legend will be hers as well as mine. She will enter it, as I have. She will wake up. She will hold the papery flushed skin in her hand and to her lips. I will say nothing. And that's also a great lesson too, isn't it, on how we live with these stories, um, how they come to mean different things to you at different points in your life. At one point in the in the in your life, you are the child in the story. Later on, you are the parent, and you are imagining uh, your own winter and your own death and your daughter being left behind uh, without you. And of course, the pomegranate there from the story um, is the is the food that uh, Persephone eats in the underworld, and that is what. That, that, is the, that is the action that requires her to return to the underworld uh, during the winter time of each year. And uh, that is what she is talking about there. And then we come to William Wordsworth. Um, and his daughter died, I believe, in 1808, 1810 or so. And this is one of his most famous sonnets. Uh, Wordsworth lived from 1770 until 1850. 
and this is his famous sonnet called Surprised by Joy, Impatient as the Wind. And this is just him remembering uh, his daughter and kind of admitting to himself that he can uh, experience happiness and recognize beauty and all the rest of it. Um, even while he is mourning, even in this absence, and uh, I've never been through that situation, and I can only imagine what kind of a process it is to realize that again. But uh, this is what Wordsworth, this is how he puts it. He says, Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I wished to share the transport, oh, with whom but thee, long buried in the silent tomb, that spot which no vicissitude can find. Love, faithful love, recalled thee to my mind, but how could I forget thee? Through what power, even for the least division of an hour, have I been so beguiled as to be blind to my most grievous loss? That thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore, save one, one only, when I stood forlorn, knowing my heart's best treasure was no more. That neither present time nor years unborn could to my sight that heavenly face restore. And then come to a quite different poem. This is by Charles Cosley, the British poet Charles Cosley, who lived from 1917 to 2003. This is his poem called Eden Rock. And this uh, isn't a poem about being a parent. It's about being an adult and um, sort of having a vision of your parents, uh, when, perhaps when they were younger, perhaps before they even had you, or, or is this some other kind of uh, vision of his parents? I'm not quite sure, but it's a, a, uh, a beautiful scene nonetheless. This is called Eden Rock. They are waiting for me somewhere beyond Eden Rock. My father, 25, in the same suit of genuine Irish tweed, his terrier Jack still two years old and trembling at his feet. My mother, 23, in a sprigged dress drawn at the waist, ribbon in her straw hat, has spread the stiff white cloth over the grass. Her hair, the color of wheat, takes on the light. She pours tea from a thermos, the milk straight from an old HP sauce bottle, a screw of paper for a cork, slowly sets out the same three plates, the tin cups painted blue. The sky whitens as if lit by three suns. My mother shades her eyes and looks my way over the drifted stream. My father spins a stone along the water Leisurely, they beckon to me from the other bank. I hear them call, see where the stream path is. Crossing is not as hard as you might think. 
I had not thought that it would be like this. And a perhaps similar poem, a vision of your parents when they were younger, perhaps before you were around, uh, comes from the American poet Jane Cooper, who lived from 1924 until 2007. This is her, just equally, I would say, equally short poem called My Young Mother. My young mother, her face narrow and dark with unresolved wishes under a hat brim of the twenties stood by my middle-aged bed. Still as a child pretending to sleep to a grown-up watchfuller or calling, I lay in a corner of my dream staring at the mole above her lip. Familiar mole, but that girlish look, as if I had nothing to give her, eyes blue, brim dark, calling me from sleep after decades. And that sort of brings the idea that um, not only do you have to do this impossible thing called uh, uh, being a parent, but one day your child might grow up and be a poet and uh, write poems like those um, about you. So you can only hope that they become a good poet, I suppose. Uh, William Carlos Williams, the great American poet who lived from 1883 to 1963, sums a great deal up with this early poem of his. Um, and you think about uh, William Carlos Williams' life uh, being a pediatrician in Patterson, New Jersey, and not being an expatriate like many other poets in his generation, and taking off on the weekends to go to New York City and do uh, the Bohemian thing, but always coming back to the small town and to the house and uh, to what you might think of as being small town concerns. Um, having the steady job, writing his short poems on prescription pads and all the rest of it. Um, all the uh, complexity of that, and I think in the episode that I shared on love poetry, um, reading from his uh, poem that he wrote late in life, uh, apologizing to his wife for having affairs when he was younger. And thinking about Williams, I think of that idea that's out of Yeats, that even he probably knew uh, was more of a good rhyme than it was uh, an actual prescription for life, uh, that the artist has to choose between perfection of the life or the perfection of the art. There seems to be this idea that you are either completely straight-laced and you live mostly in your mind, unknown and uh, in some attic somewhere, or uh, just with your family living anonymously, or you do the straight bohemian thing and most of your personal relationships uh, go up in flames. William seems to have been able to uh, do both of those things somehow and to have ended up with great poetry about both ends of it. And this early poem of his called Waiting kind of gets to uh, a lot of what uh, Many parents, even now, uh, 
obviously are thinking some of the time. He says, when I am alone, I am happy. The air is cool. The sky is flecked and splashed and wound with color. The crimson phalloy of the sassafras leaves hang crowded before me in shoals on the heavy branches. When I reach my doorstep, I am greeted by the happy shrieks of my children, and my heart sinks. I am crushed. Are not my children as dear to me as falling leaves, or must one become stupid to grow older? It seems much as if sorrow had tripped up my heels. Let us see, let us see. What did I plan to say to her when it should happen to me as it has happened now. And this is sort of an idea uh, put into verse that you can find on basically any parenting podcast out there, uh, that at some point you have to allow yourself to uh, sort of walk into a room and say out loud, um, I'm done with all of this, I'm leaving, I'm not doing this anymore. And you have that bit of, uh, that moment of um, believing that you will do it, and then you come back out and you uh, get back down to business. Uh, you have to have a, sort of an escape valve every now and then, where you admit that sometimes uh, being greeted by the happy shrieks of your children that your heart can sink, or that you can just be bored out of your mind, or that you can just feel crushed. That has to be allowed to happen. Um, otherwise, well, who, who, uh, who knows what can happen otherwise. Perhaps this can happen otherwise. Uh, this is a handful of pieces from Act 4 and Act 5 of uh, Shakespeare's King Lear. Uh, Shakespeare, of course, 1564 to 1616. And King Lear, of course, the great play of parenting. He's got his three daughters. The play opens with him asking his three daughters, tell me how much you love me. Uh, the first two kiss his ass and get all the money in the land and then treat him horribly for the rest of the play. Uh, the third daughter, Cordelia, is honest with him that she doesn't like this game that's being played. And at the beginning of the play then, she is sort of uh, evicted. Uh, she gets nothing of her inheritance and it's only at the end that the father and the daughter are reunited and you can see um, you can make uh, whatever kind of uh, parallels in our own life and our own day with that kind of situation of a parent and a child uh, being reconciled at the end and of course since this is Shakespeare and this is King Lear um, it is just prior to the deaths of both of them and so uh, in the moment where uh, Lear and Cordelia are reunited, Lear says this, Pray do not mock. I am a very foolish, fond old man. Fourscore and upward, not an hour more nor less. And to deal plainly, I fear I am not in my perfect mind. Methinks I should know you and know this man, yet I am doubtful for I am mainly ignorant what place this is, and all the skill I have remembers not these garments, nor I know not 
Where did I lodge last night? Do not laugh at me, for, as I am a man, I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. And Cordelia, who is weeping, says, And so I am, I am. And you think that that, that entire speech of his, maybe about ten lines, uh, that is just him, in <laughs> uh, uh, just a marvelous way of that Shakespeare has. Uh, that is Lear trying to um, avoid, but also get to, but then avoid and get to and avoid trying to say his daughter's name. And finally, at the end, he can't withhold himself. Do not laugh at me, for, as I am a man. I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. And then a page or so later, Cordelia says to her father, We are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst. For thee, oppressed king, I am cast down. Myself could else outfrown false fortune's frown. Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? She's trying to reunite. Uh, the whole family at this point. But Lear will have none of this. He's been dealing with the other daughters the entire play, and he says, no, 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 no. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds of the cage. When thou dost ask me a blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies, and hear poor rogues talk of court news, and will talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in and who's out, and take upon us the mystery of things, as if we were God's spies, and will wear out in a walled prison pacts and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. He is eager at the very end here, to just be with his daughter, even if that is uh, just in prison, the universe he and his reconciled daughter can make in prison. But then, a moment later, uh, the stage direction is, enter Lear with Cordelia in his arms, and uh, she has died. And Lear says, howl, 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 oh, you are men of stones. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. She's dead as earth. Lend me a looking-glass. If that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives. And of course that is the great, uh, that is the great anxiety of this entire enterprise is either that your your child dies when they are young or that you are old and they die before you as an adult and how do you um, how do you how do you deal with that and all the things that Lear has put up with and finally this last bit of tragedy and indeed in this last little speech of his he dies trying to convince himself uh, with this looking glass in front of his daughter's face that she is still breathing. And Lear says, And my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. 
Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life, and thou no breath at all? Thou'lt come no more, never, 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 never. Pray unto you this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her, look her lips, look there, look there. And the stage direction says he dies. And yeah, and the, and the genius also of, uh, as I've heard it said, of filling out an iambic pentameter line with five repetitions of the word never. Um, who, who would have the guts to do that or be able to pull it off? The very last poem here, it began with Sylvia Plath, so you could guess where I was going with the last one. Uh, the last one is by Ted Hughes, who lived from 1930 to 1998. And of course, he was married to Sylvia Plath and she committed suicide um, soon after their children were born. And, and Hughes, for many reasons, if you go looking in the biography and the letters, um, he was unable or unwilling or both or uh, combinations of the two uh, for for almost 40 years, unable to uh, face what this meant to him and tried to, and he was unable to try to put it into poetry and it was only at the end of his life that he was finally able to um, in the book called Birthday Letters that was published, I think the same year that he died. I think what it was is that uh, maybe for the 20 years preceding that book's release, he wrote a handful of poems here and there about Plath and about his other wife who committed suicide, Asya Wevel. And, but it was only until uh, the 90s or so that he had this great burst and this great uh, need to finally just get it out and to publicly write poetry about the very public death um, of his wife and how her death had been turned into some sort of uh, fodder for intellectuals and English classes all over the world. But um, this is an incredible poem, Life After Death is, um, again, like Avon Boland, of taking the subject of myth and autobiography and fusing them together in a really tremendous way. Uh, Hughes talking about, Hughes in old age, talking about when his children were still young after the death of their mother and how the three of them went on together. And uh, this is what it says. What can I tell you that you do not know of the life after death? Your son's eyes, which had unsettled us with your Slavic, Asiatic, epicanthic fold, but would become so perfectly your eyes, became wet jewels the hardest substance of the purest pain as I fed him in his high white chair. Great hands of grief were ringing and wringing his wet cloth of face. They wrung out his tears, but his mouth betrayed you. It accepted the spoon in my disembodied hand that reached through from life that had survived you. Day by day, his sister grew paler 
with the wound she could not see or touch or feel, as I dressed it each day with her blue Breton jacket. By night I lay awake in my body, the hanged man, my neck nerve uprooted, and the tendon which fastened the base of my skull to my left shoulder, torn from its shoulder root and cramped into knots. I fancied the pain could be explained if I were hanging in the spirit from a hook under my neck muscle. Dropped from life, we three made a deep silence in our separate cots. We were comforted by wolves under that February moon and the moon of March. The zoo had come close, and in spite of the city, wolves consoled us. Two or three times each night, for minutes on end, they sang. They had found where we lay, and the dingoes and the Brazilian-maned wolves all lifted their voices together with the gray northern pack. The wolves lifted us in their long voices. They wound us and enmeshed us in their wailing for you, their mourning for us. They wove us into their voices. We lay in your death in the fallen snow, under falling snow, as my body sank into the folktale where the wolves are singing in the forest for two babes who have turned in their sleep into orphans beside the corpse of their mother.